Good evening. Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Hello, Glenn. I'm Whitney. We're going to get started for the evening. It's so lovely to see all of you. We always begin and end with gratitude. So we're going to start with the staff of the Windy Saddle that makes us dinner and treats us so right every time we're here. So thank you to the Windy Saddle. This is our home. We also want to thank Greg Reed, who is the musician who lends us his sound equipment, which is way better than the weird boombox thing we used to have when we started. <laughs> Yay for Greg. He's not here tonight, but he's awesome. And I'm going to also start by, I guess I am getting a little reverb here, aren't I? I'm going to bring up our beer ambassador, Frank Blaha. He's going to talk about our beers tonight and get us started. Come on up, Frank. Hello, and thank you all for coming to Golden Beer Talks, where we expand our mind with a beer in our hand. And this month, our featured brewery is Holiday which is up there uh, on the west side of Highway 93 and is a dedicated gluten-free brewery. And it's the uh, first in Colorado, fifth in the nation, which I think is pretty cool. And like all of these breweries around here, they seem to be doing quite well. So, you know, it, it's, it's very nice. And um, since I was there and tried most of the beers on Sunday, they have nine beers on tap all of their own, and that's a pretty good variety of beers. Uh, right now, their primary brewing grains are buckwheat and millet, which is what I reported last time, but they have an experimental brew on right now that's uh, featuring rice, which I guess doesn't have gluten, which I didn't know. I would have thought rice had gluten in it. And that is called their sake red, and it does taste just a little bit like sake, and I kind of tried it, and I thought, well, that's, that's quite interesting, and I kind of like sake, but not everyone does. So I had the other red, uh, Riley Red, which is named for my horse, because I've ridden there a number of times with my horse, and, and they kind of liked that. The first time I went in, I ordered a beer for me and a beer for my horse, and they were like, is your horse here? And I said, yeah, well, look out the window there, and you can see her. And so, and, and they took a picture of us and were on the wall. Anyway, distribution of their gluten-free beer, dedicated gluten-free, so this is brewed right from the start, gluten-free, and they had to make some modifications in some of their equipment and hardware to make this all work, to work with the millet and the buckwheat. So distribution of their beer was always part of their plan, and right now, based on information that they had available there, their beer is available at 25 local restaurants and 44 liquor stores. But they said, well, whatever number you give, by the time you go and give it, it'll be a little bit more, because they keep increasing it on an almost daily basis. In fact, when I was writing these down, the woman said, well, I had three to that number because I got three new ones today. So, so they're, they're uh, uh, definitely having fun, and they do have a small canning line there, and that's how they're distributing, I think, to a lot of the uh, restaurants in cans. And right now in cans which we've got stickers of. They have an IPA, and they have a Blondale that's being canned, and they'll expand that as they can. Uh, they also have had and will have their beers available at a lot of special events you know, through the year. I believe that they were one of the featured beers at the Uller Fest that we had here in late January. Anyway, so tonight's beers that we have are Ponytail Pale Ale and Riley's Red. And the Ponytail Pale Ale is kind of a special brew it's a single hop pale ale, and they brewed it for the Collaboration Fest, which was done in Denver in late March. And in the Collaboration Fest, different breweries have to get together and collaborate. So this is their beer because it is gluten-free. They're dedicated gluten-free, and, and they are aggressive about that. But they were collaborating with Golden City Brewery and Barrels and Bottles. And so what they did was each one brewed a different pale ale, and then they mixed them for the collaboration fest. And so they came up with, and this was truly the name of the beer, and this is the sticker for the beer that was being offered from Golden at collaboration fest, the beard, the fro, and the ponytail, because that was a chief characteristic of each of the brewers at the different breweries. So that's what they were serving at the collaboration fest. Um, all right, so uh, I had promised that we would have a beer factoid at these uh, uh, Golden Beer Talks every month. I don't really have too much of one here, except that we 
seem to go through enough beer that we're kind of a problem for the breweries because it's enough that it can be a problem, uh, but not enough to really make their day. And so last month we featured Cannonball Creek beer, and it kind of put us on notice that this is the last time we're probably going to be able to get a bunch of growlers of beer from them, which is how we've been doing this. And so we're looking into, yes, getting a different setup. We might get beers on tap here. Uh, using a Sankey setup and a jockey box, which is kind of a tapper box that helps chill the beer and stuff. And um, uh, we're looking into that, and this would be a Golden Beer Talks, you know, uh, uh, investment in everyone's pleasure. And it should be pretty much universal with the different breweries. And uh, we haven't quite made the plunge yet, but we're looking into that. And the, the issue is, a lot of times when you're filling the growlers, there's a fair amount of wastage. And so when I showed up wanting 12 growlers at Cannonball Creek, they were like, we can give you 10. And, you know, there was, well, they're all doing well, so they want to have beer to sell at their venues. So um, I guess I'll just say that there is sort of a horse theme going on with uh, beer because, you know, there's pony kegs. It's a jockey box that this stuff will be served out of. I've got the Ponytail Pale Ale and Riley's Red, which is named for my horse. So, all right. I hope you enjoy the talk. I think what he's describing there is Golden Beer Talks growing up a little bit. Yikes. Exciting, though. Our speaker tonight, I've actually, you probably, some of you may already know a horticultural entomologist, but this is the first one I've ever met. And not only that, I've never, I never anticipated getting to meet a horticultural entomologist who's also a fine art photographer. Yeah, so this is a woman of many talents. And coming tonight to represent the CSU Extension and talk to us about growing of tomatoes and hops and whatever else you want to ask her about, I bet, because it sounds like she knows an awful lot. Um, we're going to bring up Carol. I first want to also mention that um, guest of honor, Carol's dad is in the audience tonight visiting us from Golden Pond. Hi, everybody. How are you? Do I have any gardeners in the house tonight? Just a few gardeners, gardeners in a box, okay, that counts. I mean, even if you have a house plant, for heaven's sakes, and you can consider yourself a gardener, yeah? <laughs> All right, as Whitney mentioned, I work for Colorado State University Extension, and I'm with the Boulder County office. So I'm located up in, in uh, beautiful Longmont, Colorado. And um, it's an interesting topic that they've given me. It's a little bit of a challenge tonight uh, because they want me to combine divas and wild child. So let's go ahead and talk a little bit about tomatoes and hops. So if you were to talk to me and tell me what kind of a relationship do these two have, what would you be telling me? I will. <laughs> this is planned. <laughs> So, would you tell me that it's the perfect combination of pizza and beer? Yeah. Yes? All right. What about the next picture over? I don't know if this side can see it, but it's uh, actually tomato juice and beer. With a little bit of vodka and Tom Cruise mixing it up. It's called a red eye. Yeah, it's a nice drink. What about ketchup and fries? Would you have some beer with that? Okay. So, then... Um, I guess I can walk around now. What about this? Here. Whoop. Lomas. So what does that have to do with either hops or tomatoes? Okay. How? The leaves. You can use hop leaves, even though we really think about hops as only something for brewing beer. You can actually use the young leaves just like you would grape leaves, and you can cook with them, and you can make dolmas, and you can use a little bit of tomatoes in the filling themselves. So that's just to get you kind of primed for why these two really are the perfect pairing. Um, it's basically a match made in heaven. Um, before I get started into the specific tips of both of them, I did want to talk a little bit about um, what were the, the, the way these plants grow is neither one of these, neither one of these is a vine with the letter V. Instead, the hops are a vine with the letter B, and tomatoes have a vine-like habit 
but vines are different. They, uh, they will wrap around in order to climb, whereas true vines have to attach themselves to the plant in order to um, grab on, or they, they connect to their um, trellis in order to grow. So they will have tendrils, they'll have perhaps some adventitious roots or something in order to anchor into it. So there, there is a little bit of a difference. Now with the tomato plant, because the vine will wrap around and climb, the tomato plant is a little different. It's actually a long stem, and initially it'll grow monopodially. So it is a central stem that at the end it will produce a, a bloom cluster. And then there are side shoots that come out of it. And these will continue the growth of this particular vine, if you will, and it becomes a smothering plant rather than a climbing plant. So that's just a little bit of gee whiz knowledge in case somebody brings that up to you at a cocktail party. Not unlike this. But let's uh, take a look at the individual plants here, and we can take a look starting with the tomato. So the tomato is a true new world food. It is, um, it is based out of the Andes region in cent or South America. The native people started uh, domesticating it, and um, you know it started as a weed, and then they started domesticating it. And as they domesticated it, it made its way up into Central America. And in the native language, it was called uh, the tomato, so it was known as fat water. And then as it grew in size and they started really uh, improving on it, it became fat water with navel or plump thing. And this isn't any right here. You can see here on the blossom end. So that's where um, the natives got their particular name for it. It's considered um, something of an aphrodisiac. The Italians really believed this. The French really believed this. I mean, just look at it. It really does look like an aphrodisiac. Um, but, you know, being, it, it's an interesting history on it because even though it's a new world fruit, it actually had to go to Europe and then come back to be recognized as a food for most of our cuisine. It was introduced into the New England area as an ornamental because they considered it, um, as a member of the nightshade family, they considered it poisonous. But it was through the French cuisine in um, uh, the Louisiana area in New Orleans that it actually was introduced culinarily to the United States. And from there, it took about 100 years for it to be widely accepted across the United States. Now it is one of the most popular agricultural um, commodities we have. It ranks number four in production. And across the United States, every man, woman, and child in a year eats approximately 80 pounds of tomatoes. And botanically, this is a fruit. It is um, considered a berry, actually, but uh, a long time ago, due to uh, taxation on uh, interstate commerce, in order to uh, give some tax relief, the Supreme Court in 1893 ruled that it's a vegetable. So if any of you uh, can think back to when we had uh, President Ronald Reagan making the statement that if the school children had a serving of ketchup, that it was a serving of vegetables. Well, according to the Supreme Court, he wasn't wrong, but those of us who know that botanically this is a fruit, or if any of us know anything about nutrition whatsoever, <laughs> um, we know that that's actually not really true. But it is a fruit. So when you're selecting this, this is one of the, the more frequent questions that I get is, you know, what kind of tomato should I grow? And people are really split down the middle as to whether they prefer to grow hybrids or heirloom tomatoes. How many of you do grow tomatoes? How many of you would say that you are staunchly in the heirloom tomato fan club? Okay, a couple. How many in the hybrids? How many of you don't really care as long as it tastes pretty good? Okay. Well, you know, the, the brief difference between the two is that hybrid tomatoes, they started in the 1940s really trying to improve on production and mechanized production of this particular plant so that 
Um, they could have improved harvests. They could have fruit that they could take to the markets, and they would be all of uniform size and color. And so they started improving it. And then in about 1973, it was uh, the University of Florida and uh, the Heinz Company that actually produced a tomato that could be mechanically harvested. Now, when you're hybridizing something, they are taking the genetics from two different strains of tomatoes, and they're crossing them. And what is produced is uh, genetically unstable offspring. So it will produce fruit, but you can't save the seeds from it and expect to grow what you enjoyed. So um, the hybrids you can't save the seed from. However, it does have improved disease and pest resistance. But like they did with the roses, what happened with such intense breeding on it is they literally bred the flavor out of a lot of these tomatoes. So in the past 20 years, a lot of um, breeding research has gone into bringing that flavor back in, even under the unique harvest conditions that they have in order to bring us tomatoes in the middle of winter. So they'll harvest them green, hold them cold, then they'll gas them with ethylene to start the ripening process. So by the time you're picking out your tomatoes in the middle of January, what you're getting are what we refer to as gas green tomatoes. Um, but that's you know something that the hybrid can, can bring to the table. Now, to understand what an heirloom tomato is, you have to first understand the class that it's in, because an heirloom is not in and of itself a class. Instead, it is a member of the open-pollinated group of tomatoes. And so open-pollinated are genetically stable. That means that you can save the seed from them, and they will grow true to type. And one of the reasons that the tomato can do this is really linked to the flower itself. So I'm going to move a little bit here. Hopefully I don't get feedback. I'm going to stand out of the way. Can you see around me? Can you guys? Okay. So with the flower, here we have the ovary. And this is actually what turns into the fruit. Um, so when you're eating a tomato, you're eating a swollen ovary. I felt that was super important to add to the conversation tonight. <laughs> Um, and then it has um, the, you know, they have the style and then the stigma, which is the top of it, so that when the pollen lands on it, it'll make it way back and, and work into pollination. Now here, we have the anthers, which are the male parts of the flowers, and they contain the pollen. The anthers in a um, tomato flower hold together and a rigid structure that you can see here, it's called an anther cone. So it actually encloses the stigma and the style of the elongating uh, female parts. So they, they pollinate themselves, and most of them never breach the top of the anther cone, and that's why they are going to grow true to type. Now, with the potato leaf variety of tomatoes, things like your true brandywines, the stigma can extend past the anther cone, so there can be a little bit of cross-pollination, but as long as your plants aren't laying on top of one another, they are typically going to be pollinating themselves, and so the seed is going to grow true to type. So that's open-pollinated. Now, we have a lot of open-pollinated varieties, and what makes a, a tomato an heirloom is that it has been around for 50 years or longer. So it is passed down from generation to generation. A lot of peoples will select these uh, tomatoes for the characteristics that make it a success in their own growing area. We have access to these now through seed catalogs, but the stories behind the heirlooms are often um, really fascinating because we'll get a lot from the, you know, the Russian uh, area of the globe, or we'll get some from Spain, or some from France. And it is these heirlooms that have been passed down and protected that we're able to, to eat nowadays. But let's talk about the brutal truth of growing tomatoes. It is one of those things that is puzzling to me that the number one most popular garden vegetable is possibly the one that is the biggest swooning diva out there. There is so much that is a challenge to growing the tomato plants that it is not on my short list for beginning gardeners because there is a lot that can grow wrong. There is so much that makes it swoon. First of all, water. If it doesn't get consistent water, that can cause it to have blossom end rot or it can cause it to develop cracking because in advance of ripening, the tomato skin will harden 
or toughen, and then you get an influx of water, and it'll split open. And a lot of people really don't like to have um, cracked open tomatoes hanging out in the garden and all the sundry insects that can come in. And trust me, I've met pretty much every one of those insects. So um, then you have temperature fluctuations. If temperatures are too cool, in other words, if it gets below about 60 degrees, and in fact, if it gets about 55 degrees at night or during the day, everything comes to a screeching halt with tomatoes. They just go into kind of a state of suspension. They won't grow. They're not going to you know, form tomatoes or that sort of thing until the temperatures come back up again. But the converse of this is if the temperatures are too hot, above 87 degrees, then they're not going to set fruit. So the, um, the middle of the summer blues, we call it. So you're going to have tomato plants that start setting fruit. You think everything is groovy. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, you're not getting many tomatoes whatsoever. It's because it's too hot out here in Colorado. And once that temperature breaks and things start cooling off, all of a sudden in September, we get a bumper crop of tomatoes. Have you noticed this with your plants? It's because we're above 87 degrees, typically. So it's too hot, it's too cold, they need the temperature just right. You know, you can get all these things absolutely perfect. But then in comes the diseases and the insects. And there is a whole host of problems that can attack a tomato plant. I mean, flea beetles and hornworms and thrips and psyllids, and that's just the insects. But take a look at some of the diseases that are attacking our tomatoes, too. This is why we're hybridizing, is you start getting this alphabet soup after the name of the tomato because what we're trying to protect from Verticillium wilt, yes, we have that in Colorado. We have Fusarium wilt. We have tobacco mosaic virus. We don't have nematodes that bother them. We do have cucumber mosaic. We have tomato spotted wilt virus. We got um, alternaria, although mostly it's in the early blight. We've got septoria. We don't have gray leaf spot. Are you depressed yet? <laughs> yeah, isn't that something? Yeah, well, you know, the plant pathologists, they have to complicate things. Entomologists call it like we see it. So, and then the, the most important problem that we have with tomato plants are the humans themselves. There's so much that humans do that annoy a tomato plant. I mean, you know, they are, first of all, they are canaries in a coal mine for any kind of um, chemical out there. They will respond at such low parts per billion that they will be curling up and being distorted um, at, you know, measurements for herbicides that are too low for our agricultural testing labs to test for. Um, we're the ones that uh, pretty much put them in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right now, a lot of stores are selling tomato plants. They're selling them. It's April, folks. We're going to get snow. But folks think that since they see them at the store that it's time to put them in the ground, and that's simply not true. So people are planting them at the wrong time. If you are somebody who um, uses tobacco in whatever form, then you're probably the one giving them tobacco mosaic virus. It's a very stable virus, and it does exist in cigarettes or chew or whatever form of tobacco you happen to be using. And if you have it on your hands and you go out and you fondle your tomato plants, you're going to be giving it to the tomato. So that's a problem as well. And then let's talk about the fact that we have really over-eager toddlers to deal with. They're the ones that are ripping them off the vine before they're ripe. I mean, humans are a huge problem for tomato plants. So what are we going to do, right? Well, let's make the diva happy. Give her what she needs, and the plant will thrive for you. So this is a full sun plant. It is a rapidly growing annual, so fertilization is absolutely crucial. Um, every two weeks until the first fruit sets, and then lightly after the fruit reaches two inches in diameter, and then mid to late summer, you fertilize every two, maybe four weeks per the label on your fertilizer as needed. Keep your water consistent, and that means through the use of drip lines and mulch. In this way, the soil moisture will stay pretty steady, and you can avoid a lot of problems with blossom end rot. 
And then hang time is crucial. If you want to develop that true old-fashioned tomato flavor, you've got to let it develop on the vine. It's the way the sugars will develop. It's also amino acids, and it is real deep, tangy flavor. And then how you eat it makes a difference. I don't know how many of you are cooks. I don't know how many of you cut open a tomato and you kind of scoop and set aside the seeds because you don't want them. Okay, there are two different types of flavor in a tomato. The sugars are carried in the meat or the flesh, and the acids are carried in the gel surrounding the seed. If you scoop out the seeds, you're throwing away half of the flavor of that fruit. So you need to eat the whole thing. Okay, let's talk about hops. We love hops, right? They're fantastic. Yes, raise your glasses. We love hops. Yes. They are um, they're really easy to grow in Colorado. They don't take the water that most people think they do. Um, one of the basic things to understand about hops culture is to understand that they grow on rhizomes. And so I'm going to ask my brother here to stand up. Could you unwrap this? This is a small rhizome from the research plots at our office. This is just a small section of this year's expansion. And you can pass that around. And when you're passing it around, right underneath where these uh, leaves are, I want you to lightly feel the stem here because there is a certain roughness. There are certain bristles there that help it climb. So you plant the hops in full sun and you have to put in whatever kind of trellising system you're going to give them in order for them to climb it. Um, one of the problems with hops nowadays is that a lot of the rhizomes have um, some virus. Because this is a clonal propagation, in other words, when you order this, you're not getting seeds. You're getting pieces of the plant itself. So a lot of them can carry a virus. So you need certified disease-free rhizomes when you order it. Um, a few other things are to make sure you put it in after frost date, and then you want to fertilize with nitrogen every two weeks until the solstice. That will come up later. I'm just teasing you with that information a little bit. Now, what hops are you going to grow? It depends on what kind of beer you want to make. There are, um, there are uh, aromatic hops, like the Cascade we're passing around, and there are bittering hops, like the Chinook or the Nugget that we're testing up at the office. Um, actually, Nugget uh, has characteristics of both, but we have, um, I think it's four different hops trials running in our community garden right now. Um, but this is what we're chasing when we're planting the hops for growing beer. So the flowers are insignificant. They look like these little kind of um, spiky little pinwheels that are, uh, you won't even notice them on the vine itself. And then around that, it, it develops this cone made of bracts. So these are papery um, structures that develop into long cones. And then it's all about the lupulin. Why do we love lupulin? Lupulin. It's everything for the beer. It is a resinous substance. It's this yellow kind of powdery substance. It, it provides the aroma. It provides the bittering. It is comprised of the alpha and beta acids and essential oils. And if you've never handled fresh hops, you are in for a treat. Because when I'm harvesting these at my house, I have to tell you that I am absolutely coated in the perfume of hops. My husband tells me I never smell better. <laughs> I have college students that come and follow me around like geese. I mean, it is, you know, you really, you handle these things and you get it all over yourself and it is fantastic. But this is what we're looking for in the production of these cones. And that's what these are is these are not the flowers, but these are cones made of bracts. And you've seen bracts in other plants. We treasure them around the holidays in winter because the poinsettia, the part of the poinsettia that actually colors up, is actually bracts. 
So in this case, these are far more important to our quality of life than any poinsettia. So um, we have these, and these are cascades. These are absolutely enormous cones that they produce. So how do you grow hops? Well, the first year, you could plant that rhizome, and they stay pretty well-behaved, and you think you've got it going on. You think, yeah, I'm a really good gardener. Look at this. Isn't it cute? Isn't it adorable? You bring your friends over to take a look at it. Yeah, that's cute. All right. Year number two. All right. Year number two, and this is my plant, and it really, it's learning to crawl. This is actually still a pretty small um, plant. You can see here, this is a six-foot privacy fence, and this was, you know, um, in year two. And then in year three, these are straight up alarming if you don't have them under control. And the reason that I'm saying that is this is my neighbor's apple tree. And our hops grew up the fence, jumped into the apple tree, and took off. So when the hops were ready, the apples were ready, he was on his side of the fence saying, I need to get my apples out of the tree, but he was terrified of the hops vine because it's literally out there like this little shop of horrors, you know, searching to grab him or his toddler or small pet. It was really taking over. So what you do is when you establish them, understand a couple of things about the nature of a hop plant. The nature of a hop plant is to produce those rhizomes, and it will start taking over your garden and the neighbor's garden if you're not careful. That, like we were passing around, if you held it up, take a look at all those upright shoots that are coming off of it. What you want to do is set up some strings so you get two strings per vine, or per plant, actually, pardon me, and then you're going to train two or three binds per string for a total of no more than six binds coming off of your hop plant. And the type of string that you're using should be some type of a natural fiber like a twine or a jute or a cotton. The stems that I had you lightly touch with those backwards-facing bristles on it, that's what allows it to cling to and then climb this. We made the mistake one year of putting out wire. It couldn't hold on, so it kept sliding down, and it really just didn't take off like we wanted it to because we were trying to make it come up and over the house like some kind of a bizarre green roof that we could then turn into beer. Um, but that's what you do there um, for the hops. And then here's why I said you only feed it until about the solstice, is because all of that upright growth on the, on the hops is happening towards the solstice. These are a secretly pagan plant. So whereas the tomato is, albeit high maintenance, it is somewhat well-cultured, this one runs rampant, and in Colorado, it's basically going to be between the solstice and July 10th that we're going to get all that elongation, but it is flowering right around the solstice. So you'll be able to start seeing these cones develop off of it as the summer progresses, and that's why we're getting closer and closer to that wet hop beer that some of the breweries like to produce, you know, some of the really nice ones. Now, up by us, we used to have a great relationship, well, we still have a great relationship with Left Hand Brewery, but we were able to take in our hops because uh, Roe, one of the brewmasters there, would make Warrior IPA, and it was a wet hop beer that was absolutely delicious. Um, so, you know, you, you only feed them until that point, and then you're just going to let the hops develop. And the last thing I want to say has to do with harvesting hops. You need to protect yourself. Those little bristles will tear you up. I mean, yeah, it's fun to come out of there smelling like hops, but you're trying to get all around these. You can lower the, the twine that it was growing on, so you're just trying to pull them off, you know, along the length of it. But you need long sleeves, and you really should use some type of a glove to protect your hands because, trust me, you're going to look like some kind of really wicked cat scratch fever after you finish handling that plant because those bristles really will tear you up. So, okay. there you go. 20 minutes, tomatoes and hops.
We're going to get Carol back up here because I know there are questions in the room. Look, there's one right now. I'll get out of the way. Julia. Okay, so um, her question is she's starting her tomato plants from a seed, and right now they're about three to four inches tall, and hopefully you're keeping the lights right down on them, about two inches from them, so that they don't get tall and leggy. They develop that nice thick stem. And the question is whether you stake them before you even put them out, and that really has to do with, you know, your light management and whether or not they're getting just too big for their britches. But the, the thing about tomatoes is all along um, the stem... They have these um, latent uh, roots, essentially. So when you're potting them up, and you should be bringing them up in pot size, you plant them deep every single time. So you really shouldn't be dealing with too tall and leggy a plant um, while you're still growing them under lights. The big thing to remember about growing tomatoes successfully is by the time August gets around, we have a ton of canopy. This is a very big plant with a lot of leaves. So in this part of the season, the absolute obsession for us is developing the roots to support that plant later. So when you're potting them up, go with the deeper pots and leave the top two sets of true leaves sticking above the soil and plant it deep below that and it'll keep rooting out and rooting out for you so that should should help you yes ma'am what do i think is the best tasting tomato i have a question for you what um, do you prefer in a tomato? Do you like that absolutely sweet, delicious, like candy tomato? Or do you like that deep, rich, old-fashioned, bring-you-to-your-knees flavor? Okay. We... Um, We run a tomato taste-off in Boulder. Um, we partner with uh, another garden center up there, and um, we've been doing it for five years. If you bring tomatoes to enter in and let the public taste, you get in for free. You can taste as many tomatoes as you want. If you don't have tomatoes to share, it's $5. Um, we've been keeping the information on this because people vote for the, the tastiest tomatoes for this. And so I've got five years of data on that, and then I talked to some of my uh, colleagues down in Arapahoe County, and they do a taste-off. And then I've talked to some of my colleagues out in the Grand Junction area because they've done some taste-offs. So um, I can give you a short list. I'm happy to email you the long list of the varieties that do well here because what you're asking me is about terroir. I can tell you that as I travel around and I taste food in other areas, I can taste a tomato that might perform better than what we're getting here, but that's because of their growing condition, not ours. My list is based on Colorado, and it is a regionally adapted list, and that is what we have to focus on because it isn't one-size-fits-all for us. We have high solar intensity. We have fluctuating temperatures. We've got alkaline soils. And we have a lot of different pressures on uh, the development of flavors. So I'm dragging this out to make you sure that you really want the answer. Okay? Okay. So the sweetest, sweetest tomato, hands down, is one that when they measure the bricks of it, so if you understand measuring sugars in solution for things like grapes, they'll go with the bricks meters. And um, if you were to measure all of the tomatoes out there, the one that comes in at 11 bricks, it is incredibly sweet. Its closest competitors come in at 8 bricks. The tastiest, sweetest one is Sun Gold Cherry Tomato. 
So if you like that nice, just like candy, off the vine, you can't stop eating it. It is the gateway drug of getting someone hooked on tomatoes. It's sun gold. But if you want the tomato, drops you to your knees, then um, you should probably try to grow the one that the research in Wisconsin is focusing on now in trying to bring flavor back into hybridized tomato. Now, hang on. Bear with me. I saw the reaction. Okay. They have a panel of chefs that are coming in and tasting all of their efforts, and they're basing it on one tomato only because it is one that chefs across the United States, even our panel of chefs, pick out, and that's Japanese black trifle, T-R-I-F-E-L-E. It's a smaller kind of a teardrop-shaped salad tomato, so it's not a cherry. It's too big for that. It's a black tomato, so you can't let it ripen fully on the vine or it becomes mealy, so you want to harvest it at 90%. I'm totally willing to download my brain to you by email if you really want all the growing stuff on this one. But, I mean, (laughs) Japanese black trifle has a flavor profile that is really incomparable. Now, the brandy wines win the taste-offs for the beefsteaks, across the United States, but Brandywine has two genetic strains out there, and both of them are struggling. The, the problem is, is there's been a lot of inbreeding in the Brandywine clan, and so if you're going to go with a Brandywine, you've got to go with a Suddeth strain, which is S-U-D-D-U-T-H. And I strongly encourage you, if you're going to go with that Brandywine, to get it as a grafted tomato, so it's on a really robust, more wild rootstock, then it'll perform for us here. Otherwise, it kind of succumbs to some of its weaknesses. But I have a whole list that has all the highlights of the ones that win the taste off. I am totally willing to email that to anybody so you can start picking and choosing what you like. The only thing that's going to be missing on that are the paste tomatoes. They don't perform as fresh-eating tomatoes, and we just, we just don't have them in competition. Yes, sir. Um, your question is, what plants can you grow along with your tomatoes to keep the pests off? And what that's asking me about is companion planting. And there's no research in it. So um, officially, the, the things that I talk about are those that are based on research. What I can talk about research has shown is that if you plant to attract beneficial insects, then they will help in keeping some of these pests down. So what you want are flowering plants with really shallow nectaries. So the nectar is right up there and the beneficial insects um, don't have to dig deep to get it. Because usually for most of the beneficials, there is a stage that feeds on nectar and a lot of times that's gonna be the adults. It's usually the larva that's going after a lot of the pests themselves. So, you know, the the shallow nectar, like yarrow, alyssum is fantastic. Mint, if you can contain it and then let it flower, okay? Um, those, those types of things, really shallow flowers. Basil, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Flea beetle control. Okay, for the, um, uh, the flea beetle, the vulnerable stage of... The, um, the tomato is, is when the flea beetle is most active, so it's at seedling stage because they, these are small jumping insects that will eat it down to a nub. So there's a couple of things that you can um, use. You can use uh, diatomaceous earth on it. That's a uh, crushed fossilized powder. It's the crushed remains of fossilized diatoms. If you were to look at it underneath a microscope, it's got really jagged edges. And what this is is a repellent. It will not kill these beetles. In other words, if you've ever been given that kind of a winter sweater that you put on and all you want to do is just claw at yourself, that's the effect the diatomaceous earth has on the flea beetles. So you could go out there and you could vacuum them off. All right? Now, when I'm talking about vacuuming, I want to make it very clear that I am not talking about a five-horsepower shop vac. I'm pointing at you, sir. 
You can't do that because that'll pull that little seedling right out of the ground. But a little, you know, dirt devil or something and you get out there, now your neighbors are going to think you're crazy. I suggest you rock it. Toss on the June Cleaver pearls, you know, the high heels and just, you know, vacuum your plants. My wife's pearls don't fit. They don't fit. <laughs> then you need to go shopping. All right. So um, when you vacuum them off, understand they're alive in the bag. You need to dispose of the bag. Don't bring it in the house or they're going to show up on your Thanksgiving table. All right. Um, so there's that. There's another product out there that's going to be, you know, in case you need something that's more of a spray and go. And this is spinosad. So spinosad is a, a product that's um, uh, derived from the fermented waste material of soil microorganisms. They found it in the soil of an abandoned rum factory. And now they, they manufacture this, and it is a uh, feeding disruptor. And uh, what it does is when the flea beetles eat it, it sends their, um, their nervous system into hyperdrive, and essentially they party themselves to death. Okay, I paraphrased. Um, you know, the, it's just you know, a nervous system overdrive, and that's uh, on the organic register as well. Anybody? I scared the heck out of people with that one. Okay. When is the best time to plant the tomato? If you are not going to use any kind of um, uh, temperature or weather protection, in other words, like the walls of water, then after frost date in your area. I don't know where you live, but in, in my area down out of the foothills, so we're going east through Boulder, and you know, out towards Longmont, it's gonna be after May 10th to May 15th. I plant mine on Memorial Day. Here's the thing about gardening in Colorado. You read all these texts and all of these articles that are produced by gardeners and, and really well-known garden writers. I have a lot of respect for them, but they don't live here in the Rocky Mountains. And if you don't take into consideration soil temperatures, you will set your plants back. And I used to, every year on Mother's Day, plant my tomatoes. My son's gift to me every year on Mother's Day is to come over and help me prep that garden. So I'd put the tomatoes in. But the soil temperatures are too cold on May 9th, May 10th, for tomatoes. Remember I said they're divas. So we put them in the ground, and they would sit there. until Memorial Day. <laughs> so put them in the ground on Memorial Day. Now, having said that, your soil temperatures are going to be coming up, and then you want to get them mulched by mid-June. Because remember, I talked about mulching to keep that moisture consistent to them. Let the soil temperatures come up, and then about mid-June is when you're putting your mulch on. Yes, sir. Hops. We're trialing uh, four types of hops at the extension office in Longmont. Okay. So what do you recommend for this area as a good growing hop with uh, good IPA characteristics? Good IPA characteristics. So I'm not a beer maker, so a good IPA, you're looking for more bittering than you are aroma. Is that the idea? So, um, you know, you can get a nice balance with Nugget, but um, uh, the uh, Chinook is a good, a good choice. Cascade is the one that seems to be the most successful, but that's aroma. So I don't know for an IPA if that's really going to get you where you need to go. Yes. So um, when you harvest the hops, how do you handle them? So you have, uh, generally there's, there are limited uh, recipes for the wet hop process. So that you can let them dry down. And this is just an air dry um, sort of process. This is, um, you know, some people will have a big enough facility that they can, you know, speed up that process with, you know, forced air into it. I just basically stick it in the sheds and ignore it at my house because it's warm and there's airflow through there to dry it. 
As far as what else can you do with the hops, we're starting to get out of my area of expertise um, because originally the Romans used hops as a sleep aid. So they would make, they would stuff pillows or they would make sachets and that sort of thing out of it. Yes, yes. You lift your hands in triumph. You know, yes, I've got something right. Um, so, you know, there are... Um, you know, there are aromatic uses for for the hops, but beyond that, you're not going to be baking them into brownies. Well, they are from the same family, but uh, Colorado State University Extension gets federal funding, and so we're going to leave that topic alone. Yes, sir. So on some of the Australian varieties you're talking about with some of the more tropical uh, and citrusy nuances to that, I'm not familiar with research into those. Ours is limited to the four, but Allie Ham is the person in Colorado to talk to, H-A-M-M, and she's done the research on so many of the hop varieties. You know, here... We have some challenges. Uh, I know a lot of the hops that we're um, looking at really have more of the, um, you know, they're coming out of Oregon and, and that breeding program up there. Um, but this is a long way of saying I have no idea. Yeah. Yes, sir. How do I fertilize tomatoes? Um, so... The, uh, when I'm hardening off the tomato seedlings, because I start seeds at my house also, so the act of hardening off the tomato plants or any of your seedlings will actually interrupt the uh, active growth of that plant because its energy is to develop stronger uh, stems to withstand the uh, winds and uh, the, uh, the more of the waxy cuticle across the leaves in order to prevent sunburn and water loss. So whereas the growth effort of the plant is not going to be focused on leaping up, it's going to be focused on trying to protect itself. So the hardening off process takes about a week. If you purchase your seedlings at the stores, they've just come through the hardening process. So your first fertilization, when you're putting it in your garden, should be a starter fertilizer at the time of planting. And that can be whatever form you want. You can use a granular type. You can use a liquid type. The thing to focus on in our native soils is nitrogen. We have a, real, we have a lot of phosphorus and potassium already. We have a wealth of that, actually. Um, so you just focus on, uh, you know, kind of a, you could go with a balanced fertilizer. But as a starter fertilizer. If you're using a granular, then you want to make sure that you're using something that's, that's fairly um, mild on the roots, so like a blood meal uh, mixed into the planting hole. Then in your succession fertilizers there, if you want to grow, go with the liquids, that's up to you. Um, you will have a problem with this. Given where you live, you have uh, real pressure of salt buildup. Um, and I know you're, he's on the western slope, so we were just talking. Um, and you're, you know, the pressure just coming out of your irrigation, and I know you're using the house lines for, for the water, but salt is an issue for you. So um, going with some of these, you know, like the manures that you're using is, is a great thing, but you've got to make sure that it's well-aged, like more than three months because of E. coli. Oh, good, three years. Um, you're over here, so... They make more every day. <laughs> yeah, they do. Um, you know, it, it depends on what your choice is. I can't... The plant doesn't care what the source of your fertilizer is. It doesn't care if it's synthetically derived... Or organic. So, what's your philosophy? And I can help steer you in a better direction. No preference. You get what you pay for with fertilizers. I can tell you that. Cheap is not better unless it's free from the horse. Okay. As far as 
going to try and understand your question. As far as training the tomato is concerned, and you call them baskets, but are we talking about cages? Okay, because you can't, you know, you're growing in containers, right? And in both cases, I'm going to say it depends on the growth habit of your tomato. Now, they have determinant types, which means they'll only get three to five feet tall, which are perfect for your containers, but they're going to set fruit all at once. So you get basically one giant flush of fruit. There are the patio types, which are true dwarfs, that will keep giving you fruit, and so that's true baskets, you know, hanging baskets. The indeterminate type of tomatoes, which is most of the ones that I was talking about earlier, these are the ones that you have to, you have to trellis. Even if you're going to go with a container, which by the way, you need, a, you know, at least a five-gallon container or larger for your containerized tomatoes. Um, so how you trellis it is going to depend on how you want to train it. So a cage allows you to put the plant in the ground and a nice robust cage of like the concrete reinforcing wire that you've got so that you can make a two foot round circle out of it and it's usually about six feet tall um, and it's got these big squares in it that you can reach through. You don't have to worry about that plant at all. Just make sure it stays within the cage or supported within the cage. If you're going to be going to stakes or if you're going to be going to a spalier because you've got more of an edible landscape that's uh, also a thing of beauty, then what you have to do is train the trunk to a central pole and then with the side suckers you're going to be pruning those off. You know, the, the junction between the leaf and the main stem, you'll get a sucker. Remember I said they grow sympodially? So these are, this is, this is how this plant rolls, but we prune those off to keep the central stem growing to train them to a central stalk. A lot of times gardeners will start doing this, but it's a lot of work to keep up with your tomato, and so caging is really easy. The one thing that I really caution people about using are these little kind of teepee looking things because I don't know who designed that, but they clearly are no engineer. Um, they have, you know, a couple of, you know, small stakes at the bottom and then this cone comes out and the weight of the plant is up here on an incredibly small base and that will fall over and you will break your, your vine. So you need something that's going to be pretty robust. Did that answer your question? Yes, ma'am. What's your take on water walls What's my take on the water walls? Uh, I think that they serve a really good purpose, depending on whether the gardener wants to get a jump on the season. So what these are are these uh, circles that have all these individual cells that you fill with water. The really neat thing about this is that the time of year that you're out there trying to fill these wall, these little cells with water that keep collapsing and spilling, the temperature is about 45 degrees. So it's a really exciting time, and that's when you can learn a lot of good curse words from the gardener because you're getting soaked, right? But if you take some of these teepee-like tomato cages, turn them upside down, and slide your water wall down over them, they'll hold them up while you fill them. Okay, and then you can kind of clip off those legs that are going to poke you in the eye or something. They should go, you should warm the soil for a week ahead of time before you use them. Remember I talked about soil temperatures is a big deal. So put down some black plastic for seven days, warm that soil underneath. Set up your water walls, let it sit there a day or two, and then plant into it. The way they're going to protect your seedling is twofold. First of all, the water in the cells will absorb warmth from the sunlight over the day, and so it will gradually cool. And then as the, the water in these cells freeze, the act of freezing actually releases heat, and that heat is trapped inside the water walls. They're very effective. Okay, good luck to you all. note that um, we've, we've hit a milestone, another milestone in the Golden Bear Talks life cycle, which is, this is the first time anyone's ever taken notes. And there's several people taking notes, which is really cool. 
If you didn't happen to remember to take notes, you can always go check our podcast, which goes on our website about a week after our, every one of our talks. And you can go back and listen to previous talks if you wish. Today, we tried Facebook Live while you were speaking. So it was a little experiment. We'll see if we get any comments on it, how that all went. Yeah. Some new. Yeah. And we hope we'll see some of you back for next month. We have the um, director of the Peaks to Plains Trail coming to give us an update on Peaks to Plains as well as um, statewide trail systems and open space. So we hope you see you then. Thank you so much for supporting us. Thank you.